don't fire someone for having nudes. Exactly. To any employer, this is normal behavior. Relax. You should be like sending them a gift for having to deal with that. Right. <laughs> you should get a, a, a nice bonus. Oh my God, a bonus. Like, and I'm so sorry your partner revenge porn to you. Yeah. Bonus. <laughs> <laughs> So go to this link from a product that was on the Goop holiday gift guide and tell me what product you're looking at. <laughs> it's a set of four dinner napkins with different positions from the Kama Sutra. Which feels so appropriate for a dinner napkin. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it depends on what kind of dinner you're trying to have. <laughs> but um, I thought this was funny and it just slightly ties into our topic today, which is sex education i'm so excited (laughs) yes okay literally one of our favorite things to talk about in general but we will not be talking about the global history of sex education in general things like kama sutra we're really just talking about the last hundred or fifty so years in the u.s specifically let's do it I guess to start, what was your experience with sex ed? So we had health class starting in sixth grade. So when I was like 11. Okay. And that was the first sex ed class that I had. And it was very basic. It was only heteronormative sex. Mm -hmm. And really just the mechanics of a penis going into a vagina. And like (laughs) what semen is. (laughs) And how an egg gets fertilized and an embryo is created and that was kind of it right and then when we were a little bit older we talked about stis Mm. and the only contraception that i really remember being taught were condoms and birth control pills not i i honestly like didn't even know that iud's were a thing i didn't know about anything else me neither And, and like we talked about menstruation but yeah very anatomical no conversations about consent or Mm. not even that much about hormones or like why you may or may not be attracted to certain things or people or Mm -hmm. talking about porn or how experiences manifest especially as a as a teenager and like going through puberty but that was also 15 years ago or something um so i don't know if i don't know if things have gotten better or more comprehensive and I also don't know exactly how what my ideal sex education would have been. Yeah. So I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, no, that's, I think, very similar to my experience. Um, was your school religious or no? No. Okay, because I went to a Catholic school, so I would say I think I got even less information than you probably. Definitely mm-hmm. similarities in terms of it being anatomically focused, but more along the lines of this is sperm, this is egg. They go together and they make a baby. And I was sort of like... Mm-hmm. how like how does the sperm get to the egg i do not understand <laughs> so i went up and i asked the nurse afterward because they just like fast forwarded through the entire male portion of the movie that we watched did you watch a movie i must have but because we we were like sat down it was like called the movie you know like everyone knows about oh. the day in fifth grade when you watch the movie if we watch the movie, like capital T, <laughs> the movie, I don't think I remember that. We we definitely watched like educational clips and stuff right. like that. And there were a lot right. of PowerPoints with very mm. graphic images of yeah. like genital warts. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> and no conversations about sex for pleasure in any way. It was all about... None. Of course not. Procreation. Did you get a lot of abstinence narrative at your school being religious? The thing is... 
we didn't even get that far. Like, I did not know the penis went into the vagina. Like, I asked them, how does the sperm get to the egg? And they said, the penis has to be very close to or touching the vagina. (laughs) And you're like, Like, I'm sitting next to a boy in class. And you're like, like, do not point that thing towards me. (laughs) Literally. And... That was another confusion for a lot of girls in Catholic school. Like when they get their period, they're told, oh, oh, you're a woman now. Like you can have babies now. And they're like, wait, like, do I have to avoid boys forever or I'll get pregnant? Like it it was so unclear. Yeah. And also, like you said, no mention of sex for pleasure. So I don't think we even realized sex was something we had to abstain from because it seems so torturous. I was like, like a boy's penis is going to have to be near my vagina. That's horrible. (laughs) Like Like, why would I ever do that? Yeah. Like it did. It just like did not click and so they definitely took just like a a omission approach kind of a fear-mongering approach and then in sixth grade so the fifth grade was the movie sixth grade we (laughs) the sequel (laughs) sixth grade we had a speaker come to our school like she talked about this 16 year old girl who's pregnant and didn't have finances and was considering getting abortion but she didn't and then she gave birth to this beautiful baby girl and that was x many years ago and that girl is me i could have been aborted but i wasn't and i'm so glad i wasn't And like you shouldn't get an abortion like that kind of talk oh god and then the next year we had to watch someone giving birth basically so it was all procreation focused Mm -hmm. none of it was about sex or pleasure i didn't even really know the mechanics of sex for a long time and all i knew was don't get an abortion that's kind of like where the education stopped i don't even remember if i learned about abortions in a health class oh and if i did I certainly didn't know what an abortion was. It was just like, oh, the termination of a pregnancy. Like, I didn't know right. how it happened. Right. I think I learned about that from friends or the internet, like the day after pill. And mm. and even in high school, I don't even think I really knew what an abortion entailed. Or, or I, I don't know. don't remember learning what an abortion was, but I do remember growing up, I thought I was pro-life, which I am very much not now. But I thought I was because also a lot of the narrative was like talking about fear mongering. We were sort of told like if you get an abortion, your mental health will be so wrecked that like you'll experience suicidal ideation. Like you'll be so Mm -hmm. grief stricken and guilt stricken about having killed your child that you won't be able to recover. And so I was like, oh, my God. And even when I started dating my now husband and I was 18 years old at that time, I was still of the mindset like if I got pregnant today, would not get an abortion. And Again, I don't think you ever know until you're put in that position, but I was still like very, very much in the midst of unlearning a lot of that rhetoric from my childhood when I was even 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. And and still now, of course. Yeah, we, I think I learned, or, or I think the first conversation that I had with an adult about an abortion was in catechism class. So like in a religious yeah situation of being told like, there's this evil thing that people that don't believe in god do yeah and it's murdering babies and i was like what the hell like and when it's framed like that to you when you're like 12 years old and you're like is it is that are people talking about this yeah. <laughs> like, like, babies being murdered left and yeah. right and and no like actual explanation of what an abortion is why somebody might get one what we define as a baby mm-hmm. oh so scary to be spoken so to scary. that way oh yeah but With all of that said, I figured we could sort of jump back in time a bit and cover off on a brief history of like formalized sex education in the U.S. 
And then we'll spend some time on the current state of sex education and like the impact of those sex ed programs, depending on what information is shared. And then we can, as always, concludes with, conclude with some thoughts and advice. Wonderful. I'm so excited to hear about how sex ed became a thing and when <laughs> oh, yeah. it started and what it looked like. So I watched a documentary for this called Sex Ed, the ed being in parentheses for, to be honest, I'm not totally sure what reason, but um, it was Style. informative. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just like cool looking. It's it's like when people spell like cats with a Z, you know, <laughs> like it's just. <laughs> so um, in this documentary, they do a pretty good job of jumping through the last hundred or so years. And they mentioned that the first sex ed class in America called Moral Education was in 1893. And since then, over 100,000 sex ed films have been produced. Wow. Which is weird to think about just like, I mean, for me at least, and it sounds like for many other people, given the number of films we've made, movies are like the primary way to teach this subject, which I think is really interesting. That's so, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. So the first course was called Morality? Moral Education. Where they just like tying sex to morality or what like how was the what's the moral part of it to be honest i'm not sure i think it might have been like relatively comprehensive and talked about morality in general and with that like scooped up some things Mm. about sex or dating or marriage or family without necessarily being super explicit so it wasn't a class just about sex ed it was just like i think so they didn't go into much detail in the documentary but that's impression that i'm under Cool. Then in the 1940s, there had obviously already been one world war and now we're in like the throes of the second world war. And I guess historians have identified wars generally lowering people's inhibitions. Mm. So the quote science of life or sex ed films became a little bit more explicit during this time period. But this also meant that some people get like their first exposure to sex ed when they were literally in the military. Like, they're joining the military, and, like, then they're getting these sex ed films and pamphlets for the first time. That's so interesting, because I'm I'm, I'm assuming that it was also very heteronormative. Oh, yeah. And at the time, it was also just men in the military, right? I am literally so glad you said that. Yes, it's just men, because as you and I talk about in season one during our men's rights episode, women could not join the military until the 1950s or 1949 or something like that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it was just men. Such an interesting moment to be sharing sex ed that's like just about having sex with women to a bunch of men who aren't going to be seeing women. I know. Well, the thing is, they possibly are because if they're stationed somewhere else, like in Japan during World War One, they actually probably will be having sex with the women who live there. So like, all right, before you go abroad, let's let's have some conversations. Yeah. And this is the pre-penicillin days. Penicillin was not invented until 1944. So the focus of this sex education was pretty much on how to not contract a venereal disease. Interesting. And there's this film called Sex Hygiene from 1942. Again, like you said, only men are seeing this. And they're unsurprisingly, these films around this time, including this one, Sex Hygiene, they are very quick to blame women. Like the language is always... She may look clean, clean. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> she may look clean, but she may be a bag of trouble. <laughs> oh. Or 
loose women may be loaded with disease. It's basically all about how only women have diseases and and they're giving it to men. Okay, not like they're getting it from men. (laughs) So women aren't getting this information because why would they need it? Because they're already the ones carrying the diseases. Something like that. Either way, they are not getting it. And the sort of plot of this film from 1942 is like this one guy contracts a venereal disease and like needs to figure out what to do about it. And he goes, she looked clean, corporal. And then the corporal goes, well, she's filthy on the inside. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) There's also this other film from a few years later, and I wanted to send you a clip of it because I think it's so funny and neatly maps onto the pattern of blaming women for all venereal diseases in general. Of course, it's always women's fault. So I just sent you a link if you want to watch the clip. (laughs) All right, let's see. Representative tries to find one of the known contacts of an infected person. And here, as with all other cases in Oakdale, he is successful in locating a potential source of syphilis. The tall, aggressive blonde. (laughs) (laughs) The zoom in to that woman's face. I know, with the like jazzy tri-note, like trill in the background. I love the camera work because it's just panning around this baseball field like, where is the syphilis? And then <laughs> we identify the syphilis. The tall, aggressive blonde. I'm going to start calling you that. The tall, aggressive blonde. The tall, blonde. aggressive blonde. I mean, not wrong. <laughs> it's just funny because she could not look more pleasant. She's just standing there smiling and they're like, so aggressive. Like, well, really? She's filthy on the inside, Audra. And so, yeah, the messaging beyond obviously being gendered is also just one of... The messaging is almost suggesting it's unpatriotic to let yourself contract a venereal disease and you would get punished and lose pay if you contracted a disease but you wouldn't lose pay if you had gone to a prophylactic station so there's like it's very much just like do not contract a disease do not contract a disease wow and it's just funny because it's like women are always told like don't get pregnant it's interesting that the focus is a little bit different but i'm sending you this link Hmm. and we'll scroll down to an image that's pink so that you can see one of the pamphlets that was given out and in the bottom right corner of the pamphlet, you can see some sort of bolded messaging. And I thought you could read that for us. A good soldier will not get venereal disease. Venereal diseases aid the axis. If exposed, use army prophylaxis. And then if you keep scrolling past like five more images, there's a black and white drawing of what a prophylactic kit or unit looked like in the army. Ooh. So what do you see? A mysterious box, (laughs) a trunk, if you will. They're like bowls and some sort of gauze, Mm -hmm. vials that look like, I guess, some sort of medicine of sorts, some towels. I don't know if those are what those other little boxes are, maybe matches or something. Yeah. So I'm looking at the line items beneath the image and it looks like there's some mercurous chloride ointment, some mercury bichloride some mercury large poison tablets <laughs> that that sounds delicious i'll take two yeah <laughs> there's the urethral prophylaxis syringe some soap um some tissues protein silver tablets um so this is supposed to just clean you right out yeah that's the idea okay so around this time as well in 1942 we get planned parenthood which sort of grew out of this basically like birth control clinic that Margaret Sanger 
had opened in 1916 in Brooklyn. Wow, I didn't know Planned Parenthood was that old. Yeah, it was. I would have guessed it started in like the 70s. You know what? It is that old. And they're actually the ones who funded the research to create the birth control pill, the oral contraceptive. Wow. Um, But we should mention, first and foremost, Margaret Sanger, the one who opened the nation's first birth control clinic in Brooklyn, she was a racist eugenicist who also believed in forced sterilization. So um, not great. And then in terms of funding the oral contraceptive, like I said, it turns out that Planned Parenthood is the entity who awarded a grant to a handful of biologists to research oral contraceptive. But in so doing, the clinical trials that they held to basically test the effectiveness or the efficacy of this pill they carried that out in Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing about this. Yeah. Testing was conducted on Puerto Rican women without informed consent. They were not told that there were potentially dangerous side effects. And the level of hormones in those pills were 20 times higher than they are now. Wow. Yeah. As with every topic on the show, there's like problematic and racist elements to literally every step along the way. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to mention, oh, like Planned Parenthood came around in 1942 and funded the birth control pill research without mentioning how... <laughs> problematic its history also is yeah they funded research for a pill for white women right (laughs) right exactly as Um, usual off the backs of women of color of course but then yeah so in 1944 penicillin was invented and could treat syphilis one of the most prevalent stis at the time and it could also pretty effectively treat gonorrhea another concern back then now in quick succession we need to mention another racist situation from our country's lovely history which is the tuskegee syphilis study where a lot of black men who had syphilis were basically not told that they had syphilis and were left untreated for a long time just to see what would happen what would happen yeah so um i am going to mention the fact that like at scale we now have penicillin to treat syphilis means that the pattern or the focus of sex education shifts away from not contracting a venereal disease because they're now so treatable. It's less of a catastrophe if you contract something. Mm -hmm. But again, that historical trend in our shifting focus of sex education in general can't go without mentioning the racist things happening behind closed doors at the time. That's so horrific. So horrific. Yeah. Just to not be told that you have this thing. And and there, um, we'll link to these in the show notes. There are two episodes by the podcast called you're wrong about that cover off on this exact phenomenon or this horrific study but the data wasn't well kept well recorded they didn't really do anything with it it didn't prove anything and the whole point of them having literally deceived these people at the cost of like their livelihoods and health and in some cases lives like was for what they kept saying oh it's for the data it's for the science it's for the research and they got like nothing out of it it's it's really horrible oh my god like you yeah it's, you can't even then give the shitty excuse of but for the greater good right, right. Like, <laughs> you didn't even like, write it down bob yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh my good lord so anyway the focus is shifting now that we do have a treatment for some of the most prevalent stis and sex ed in the 50s especially because after the war people really wanted to get the family back together mm, snaps for family <laughs> nuclear family um yeah phyllis schlafly is like clapping from her grave get the family back together (laughs) so the focus shifts to have more to do with how to ask a girl out how to 
be proper in going steady. And it was way less to do with sex. It was sort of just like if we teach them how to get into proper relationships and, of course, hetero relationships, then they won't be on the streets having sex, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever. So it was kind of like a chivalry class, a courting class. Yeah. It was like if you call a girl and talk to her this way, she won't want to go on a date with you. So try this. It was basically like feeding them a script. This is the the OG pickup artist. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Wait. And and when was Um, where was this happening? In school? In in school, yeah. There, well, films, of course, but this, the films are being shown in school. It's like part of that idea is kind of nice of talking to young men about polite ways to engage with women, but that's not <laughs> in lieu of sex ed. Right. And it's also not, this is the secret manual right. written by other men <laughs> about how <laughs> to speak to women. But I, I don't mind having a little a little sprinkle in there of let's be polite. Let's be kind. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure that if it was less gendered and less hetero, it could have gone mm-hmm. a slightly longer way. But like you said, it's still not in lieu of actual sex education. And the message, the messaging became so abstracted that it's hard to have any real takeaways or understand the application to one's own life. Like mm-hmm. you sort of just watch this film about this guy trying to ask a girl out and him denying her, but then this more polite guy asks her out and she goes out with him and it's like, okay, okay. Like, <laughs> but I'm, I'm horny still. Like, I don't know what to do with that, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of back to the moral class that started it all. Oh yeah. It's, it's labeling like the only sex that you should be having or feel good about having is in this heteronormative relationship that started in a very specific way and is going a specific way. And mm-hmm. like, you don't need to be in a relationship to have sex. It's it's available. <laughs> right, right. And there's, of course, still more blame put on women. And they describe in these movies of the 50s, girls who, quote, parked with all the guys were bad because it made each guy individually feel less important. So if you want to be like, a good girl like you can only you know be talking to one guy whatever for those confused about the word parked i think it's just that you like sit in a car like yeah like in the mm-hmm. movie grace like people are hanging out in parking lots with a milkshake two straws of course <laughs> they're probably not even having sex they're just sitting there i know i know now we're moving to the 1960s and i know we sort of teased this earlier just when we were talking about planned parenthood's history but In the 1960s, the birth control becomes approved for use in the United States by the FDA after, of course, Puerto Rican women being experimented on. And um, that was thanks to the trial being funded by Planned Parenthood. But as universities also at this time became more and more co-ed throughout the 60s, there were more co-ed dorms. And so people do start having sex in greater numbers. And the film's sort of swing back to a little bit more explicit than they were in the 50s. The 50s having had much more of a family focus. And now, in this 1962 film called Boy to Man, they mention masturbation. And they they mention wet dreams. They say nocturnal nocturnal emission and masturbation. Basically, doctors know that neither of those cause mental disease nor physical injury. Both are natural outlets in no way harmful. Which I was like, wow, that's great. Like, normalized masturbation. Is it only for men? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know me too well. Masturbation. I'm like, this sounds a little too good to be yeah, true. Yeah, no. Girl to Woman, which came out three years later in 1965. Yeah, masturbation, sexual pleasure, not acknowledged at all. I, I think it's funny, the, the narrative of we get told, like, you became a woman because you get your period. And men are being told they became a man because they start jerking off like what 
I hate you're like that you're idea. one of us now and don't worry don't feel bad about this yeah but yeah basically the films for girls focus much more on menstruation than anything else and what's ironic is like they weren't even doing that well i think a lot of people still walked away having no idea what a period was and it also in many cases comes too late like there are a mm. lot of girls who get their period before they ever have heard of what a period is that is terrifying yeah i used to work at a tampon company and we had a series called my first period story so many women would share with us that they thought they were dying they wrote their moms a death note and like hid in the backyard like there are so many girls like it's terrifying to be bleeding for days and it's not just blood like there's also like tissue from your uterine wall like it's really really scary to have that happen to you and not know why yeah especially because it's coming out of your vagina it's not like you got a cut on your arm you're like right what 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 right those my organs falling out of me what's (laughs) happening i was just talking about this with a friend of mine from spain as well and we were talking about when we would see tampon commercials as kids before we knew what a period was and that we both were remembering the same tampax commercial where a woman like goes into the like a public bathroom really stressed out and then like goes into a stall and then comes out smiling and i was like what Mm -hmm. the hell just happened in there literally what are you advertising and both of us, based on that commercial, asked our moms, like, what's going on? What is this? And her mom didn't tell her. But I remember asking my mom, I was like, what is going, what, what are these commercials for? She's like, they're for tampons. I'm like, what's a tampon? Why do we, why, why would she need one? And I was like, well, because after a certain age, women start bleeding every month. And I was like, we what? Why? <laughs> from, from where? from where? And she was like, from your vagina. And I was like, I was <sighs> shocked. I was like, mom. <laughs> what like i could not believe that that just happened and mm-hmm. i'm like why is this not like a national crisis like why are we talking about this every day like what and, and so many people think after watching these movies or getting these sort of deficient sometimes explanations from their parents they think okay so i get my period once and then it's over and then like it's as if it's almost like a marker of you having become a woman and then you're done and you don't get it ever again mm-hmm. or some people think you just bleed for five minutes like when you get a cut and then mm-hmm. it's over and it's not like it's actually seven days of continuous bleeding it's still yeah even when the focus is on menstruation it is so deficient and not good and like girls walk away beyond just being confused also being really ashamed yeah and i mean even my mom was so shamed for anything that had to do with her bodily functions growing up and her mom was unwilling to talk about it in any capacity mm-hmm. would not buy period products for her daughters and so my mom with her babysitting money would just stand in the bathroom at school putting quarter after quarter in the dispenser and buy her own tampons that way and would have to hide them in her room did her mother not use period products for herself she must have hid them somewhere i have no idea i mean she oh she definitely God. did I guess, so my mom has six siblings. There are seven of them total. And her youngest sister is only eight years younger than her. So she wouldn't have gotten her, she didn't get her period at eight. But like her mom was definitely like still fertile, like pre-menopausal by the time my mom got her period. Because mm-hmm. she was like basically still having kids. It's <laughs> like, no, no, just go free bleed in the corner. Don't talk to me. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, even now, and that's something that my mom is, I like <laughs> joke with her because she'll be like, are you on your period? She has to whisper it. It's like she's still working through that. And I'll joke with her and I'll be like, am I on my period? Like yeah. you can say it out loud. And I'm sure it's like nails on a chalkboard to her. But it's, of course, understandable given what she grew up with. Yeah. In in Spain, a lot of people will say, te has puesto mala, which, mm. which means you got sick or she's sick. Mm-hmm. Está mala. Yeah. 
se ha puesto mala. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm not ill. This is happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually healthy because this is happening. <laughs> like, right. Right. <laughs> this is a good thing. <laughs> and like, speaking of the sibling my mom has who is eight years her junior, my aunt is a sign language interpreter. And she says, so like anything along your jaw, any sign along your jaw, I think has to do with like female signs. You could be sending something about your mom or your sister or like a girlfriend or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's also a sign that involves like moving your hand toward your jaw. That means period. But if you want to be subtle, what you'll do is you'll just sort of like poke your tongue inside your mouth, like on your cheek so mm-hmm. that your cheek juts out a little bit in the place where you would have otherwise put your hand. So if maybe you need a tampon from mm-hmm. your friend and you like sign with each other, you would just stick your tongue like mm-hmm. like that and they would understand. So even I don't know, it's really interesting cross linguistically to see all of the different ways in Spanish or in sign language or even just like whispering, like all the things we do to hide the fact that we're on a I period. I know. I'm just thinking back to high school and like all of the ways that all of the girls would sneakily be asking people for a pad or a tampon and how we would like hide it in our sleeve and try to seem mm-hmm. like as if you were passing a secret note or something. Like mm-hmm. God forbid anyone in this room, particularly the boys, know that I'm bleeding right, right. now. Right. And it's beyond it being like just like psychologically devastating, it also has very real physical harmful effects to not know about your body so some women might have an obstructed hymen of some sort so they're getting their period each month but they're not bleeding because it's obstructed and then you can turn septic so like (gasps) you should know whether or not you're like what age am i supposed to get my period what should i expect of this body what should i ask my doctor or even again when i worked at that tampon company there was one day that our company was featured on the today show and a man emailed in after seeing us and said I am so appreciative of what you're doing and destigmatizing this conversation and getting this out in the open because he had lost his wife to uterine cancer. Mm. And he said part of why that was is that she never talked about her period with him, even after Mm. decades of marriage. But as a result, he also never really looked into women's health. He didn't know that she at 65, 66, 67, 68 shouldn't have still been bleeding so much. Yeah. And so he didn't know what questions to ask or that she probably should go see a doctor about that because at this age, you should be menopausal or like have stopped getting your period. And he ended up losing her. And he said in his email, like, thank you. Like, if you ever want me to go on the road and give mm. talks, like I'll. But the point being, That's like, so you sweet. need to know what to expect yeah. of your body. This is very important to talk about and to not be too ashamed to talk about. Yeah. For it's it's such a ridiculous thing. I mean, stigma in general is upsetting but like to stigmatize something that is completely natural is happening Mm -hmm. to most people that have a uterus Mm -hmm. it's like well what and and is the reason we're all here (laughs) other people who don't have uteruses should also know about it because Mm -hmm. this man for example or if you were a single dad and have a daughter Mm -hmm. you have to go buy her the damn tampons like right it's just such a silly thing to be weird about right or if maybe legislation begins passing in your area and you don't know a damn thing about the fucking female reproductive system mm-hmm. you should know about it you should learn yeah. about it yeah or and knowing also like when you first get your period maybe it won't be super regular maybe you'll go a month or two without mm-hmm. having it or it'll come back in two weeks and you're like oh my god am i dying now or did something happen like knowing that things can look so many different ways and also Oh, if you lose your period for six months, maybe there's something else going on that you need to talk to your doctor about. And right. there's a lot of data that your cycle can give you. Right. Like we talked about this in the lightweight rowing episode of season one. But if you are, if you were someone who had your period for a few years and then you lose it, 
because you're on an extremely competitive like D1 sports program at college and you're mm-hmm. doing two-a-day workouts and maybe you have a nutritionist for the team who has like restricted your intake in some way and now you've lost your period that could mean that you have lower levels of estrogen it could mean that your bone density lowers like yeah. like you're saying it is important feedback that your body is giving mm-hmm. you and no it's not always a crisis but no like being in tune with what's going on and knowing which questions to ask mm-hmm. can really really serve you yeah and knowing about like pms and all the things that it's not just that you're bleeding like yeah all these other things happen around your mm-hmm. period and what your hormonal response might be and cramping and how your period is going to look like all of my friends in high school we all had very different periods Mm -hmm. some had lighter some had stronger some had cramps some never had cramps some people would bleed for seven days some people would bleed for four days like it manifests in so many different ways and you need to Mm -hmm. be aware of that and like acne and mood swings and being maybe depressed or more irritable or all this stuff like not feeling like yourself like it's not just blood comes out of a hole once a month like (laughs) it's so much more shit right or if like all your friends are using tampons and you're not because you find it so excruciatingly painful Mm -hmm. the answer isn't just like oh I guess I'm a pads girly it's hey maybe I have vaginosis and I should talk to my doctor like why is it excruciating to put even a light tampon with the smallest diameter Mm -hmm. in my vagina or I didn't know what a pelvic floor was No. Are you kidding? How I wish I knew about pelvic floors earlier. (laughs) Yes. Or my little sister did not realize that ovulation is part of the menstrual cycle because no one fucking talks about it. They Mm -hmm. just say, you bleed once a month. Good luck. Yeah. And so she thought something was wrong with her. The poor deer is like, I think I have like exceptionally sweaty labia. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know what to do. I was like, are you sure it's not just like discharge when you're ovulating? And she was like, wait, what do you mean discharge? And I was like, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? She didn't know. Like, how could you know when they don't talk about it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would send you an image that I think it's, it's not from the sixties, but I, it just perfectly encapsulates the fact that they're acting like they've told you what you need to know. But it just gives you so many more questions than you even started with. So I'm sending you an image. Can you tell me what you see? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it could not be less helpful. (laughs) So it's a picture with two arrows pointing at a vulva. Mm -hmm. And it just says labia with arrows. And it's just kind of pointing at a general area. And it's pointing at like <laughs> camel toe. Like it's yeah. the front of the body and it's yeah. in, in dark shadow. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right. Thanks so much. Like, w- like if I were looking at my vagina with a mirror, I would not know what they meant by those arrows. Like, what, yeah. what is the labia? Mm-hmm. You're pointing at like the darkest, least detailed part of the diagram. And we just see the front. Like mm-hmm. there's no distinguishing that from like, what's the labia majora versus the yeah. labia minora? Where is the clitoris? Where's the urethra? Where's the vagina? Where's the anus? I have no motherfucking yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. It is just pointing at bald labia from the front. It just literally looks like Hamilton. Yeah. That was also a big thing. I feel like in middle school of when we started taking health classes and stuff and lots of girls being like, I didn't realize that there were multiple holes going on here. Like yeah. I thought we would just... There's one hole and we pee out of it. Yeah. No, there are three. There's urethra for pee, your vagina for a lot of things, Mm -hmm. and your anus. So Mm -hmm. um, if you didn't know, now you do. You have three holes down there, ladies. And (laughs) anyone with three holes, that's what you need to know. And the tampon goes in the anus. (laughs) The tampon (laughs) could not go less in the anus. (laughs) 
Actually, when I worked at a ta- uh, when I worked at a tampon company, I think we need to start a drinking game for every time I mention that this episode. But honestly, take a shot anytime Audra mentions a past job of any kind. <laughs> Ice cream catering, tampon company. Yeah. Um, but we did have a trans woman. So assigned male at birth had transitioned to, I mean, maybe socially only had transitions to being a woman. But they mentioned that they every month sort of felt dysphoric for not having a period and wanting to like Mm. better relate to their like cis sisters. Mm -hmm. And they would put a tampon up their anus and they they were just emailing us to make sure like, is that safe? Okay. And no, it is not. Mm -hmm. So we sent them free pads and we're saying like wear these like for a couple days every month if that will sort of help mitigate your dysphoria but a tampon should not go up your anus basically toxic shock syndrome is the result of a staph bacterial infection sort of getting out of control and it can create toxicity in your blood but one of the reasons that can happen is when a tampon is dry it can Mm -hmm. sort of like tug at the walls of any cavity Mm -hmm. and in your anus and in your vagina those like membranes are very thin and so you're increasing the chance of the bacteria getting into your bloodstream when you're removing dry tampons from anything which it will be if you're putting a dry tampon in your anus Mm -hmm. it will be removed dry Mm -hmm. same with your vagina you should not be wearing a tampon of a, an absorbency that is like too big for your flow so mm-hmm. you should always be fully saturating your tampon before you remove it and if you're not size down and if you're still not just try a liner or a pad but yeah don't put your tampons in your anus everyone <laughs> yeah i remember when you taught me about that another thing that i didn't learn about in school mm-hmm. and i thought toxic shock syndrome was just like a freak accident that could happen because maybe there's some weird chemical in the tampons or something mm. because i remember asking you when you started your job because the tampon company it was all organic and didn't mm-hmm. have any crap in it or whatever and i asked you oh does that mean it's less likely that you would get toxic shock syndrome and you're like that is not what causes toxic shock and i was like what <laughs> What? what i'm like literally why is that not part of health class to know like i didn't even know that you could die from wearing a tampon i know yeah and and like proper tampon etiquette <laughs> i know you know and like i know don't probably don't sleep with a tampon in because you might sleep longer than the amount of time you should have a tampon in and right stuff like that yeah that's a good point don't sleep with a tampon in i always recommend especially if you're new to tampons setting a timer on your phone or your watch or anything just so that you don't forget to take it out but also yeah really if you're not saturating a regular size or a super size tampon in the eight hours that you're supposed to be wearing it then please size down because you want to be removing a tampon that is basically saturated enough to have some sort of like frictionless release Mm. so that you're not ripping the membranes it wouldn't be it's not necessarily painful it just micro tears where Mm -hmm. bacteria is small enough to get into Mm -hmm. I have a question. I don't know if you know the answer, but when people have stories of losing a tampon in their body Mm -hmm. or like accidentally putting in two Mm -hmm. and then only pulling out one and then Mm -hmm. they'll like be having sex with a man and won't even feel it. And like, where does it go? Great question. (laughs) That actually happened to me one time where I left a tampon in and then Andrew and I were having sex and I was like, he was like, you have a tampon in. And I was like, no, I don't. He's like, "Uh, you definitely do. (laughs) Um, It doesn't go anywhere besides just being very, very far up your vaginal cavity. So it's probably like pressed up against your cervix. But your cervical opening is so microscopic, unless you are in active labor pushing out a baby, Mm -hmm. that a tampon will not be able to move past the cervix and into the uterus. So it's probably just very deep in your 
vaginal cavity to a degree that like maybe your fingers are too short to reach it or if you have tighter vaginal muscles like you just can't get your fingers in there deep enough to remove it or the string has maybe like if it's flipped upside down and the string isn't available to you it's just hard to get out on your own Mm -hmm. but it can't it can't be like swimming around your body or anything like that yeah that's like I knew it didn't go into your uterus and that's why I was like how Mm -hmm. could you like not find it yeah I also had a friend who had trouble removing her tampon the first time she wore one because she did have like I honestly I don't think I ever had an intact hymen I thought they were like mythical for a long time I was yeah. like those can- that has to be a lie because I've never mm-hmm. had one of those but um yeah my friend had trouble removing her period or her tampon the first time she used one because it got almost caught on her hymen this is a bit graphic but if you imagine if you imagine flowers growing in a basket with a handle and then Uh imagine like the flowers kind of growing around the handle that's sort of what happened as she tried to remove her tampon and it had like gone around yeah so she had to get it removed at urgent care or somewhere Mm -hmm. but yeah if you're ever having having trouble removing your tampon definitely just go straight to the doctor they can always help you remove it and they can do it in a much gentler way than you could can probably do it on your own but yeah back to the 60s and the films of the times gayness does not appear in any of these sex education films basically until 1961 in a film called boys beware because surprise surprise they position gay men as predators not this shit again i know like the satanic panic all of this shit Mm -hmm. and the films of this era targeted for boys position the main fear as being like picked up by a quote homosexual Mm. then the films of this era targeted toward girls highlight the main fear being just like kidnapped and raped in a desert in general by any adult man okay presumably straight because they don't like yeah code it it's not like queer coded characters that are picking up these girls and there's no talk about women being gay No. no 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 okay so so we've leveled up by now gay men exist. However, there's there are all creepy predators and it's only men. And police departments are like producing these movies too, which I think is just like extra fucking insidious and is unsurprising given the relationship that police departments had with queer people mm-hmm. and gay people at this time. And we're just talking sexuality at this point. We're not talking about gender identity or oh no 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 none of that comes up even just like the mechanics of gay sex does not make an appearance i'm not even sure it is really now mm-hmm. it's really just like there are these creeps called homosexuals it's like the most insidious imaginable positioning of gay people i just can't imagine i mean i i guess we'll get to this later because i'm i'm sure that most schools don't have super comprehensive sex ed for queer and trans youth but Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine being trans in the 60s and not knowing jack shit about your body about sex about anything and then the first time there's any mention of a gay man it's like you are a predator (laughs) yep it's so horrible it's so 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 horrible Mm -hmm. it's also just frustrating because i think it's really frustrating that we had criminalized homosexuality classified it up until 1973 as a mental disorder and pushed so much of the gay community and gay friendships and like culture and hookups we pushed that all underground because we criminalized it Mm -hmm. and then we sort of like took this trope of like men trying to find other men and use 
are you a friend of Dorothy or like dropping their hairpin or doing whatever Mm -hmm. to signal to other people in as safe a way as possible like hey I'm gay too Mm -hmm. like can we hook up Mm -hmm. I I just hate that like we force people underground we force them to act in sort of like covert ways Mm -hmm. and then we used that covert behavior to double down on our prejudice against them and be like oh like these creepy men drive around in cars looking for people to hook up with like yeah we force them to do that yeah like they're not being creepy they're not trying to like whatever it it just frustrates me that like we put people in this position and then like double down on our prejudice because of that position we put them in exactly it's (laughs) being a predator is is a a kind of an equal opportunity situation (laughs) like I'm sure, right. you know, there are gay men who are predators. <laughs> it's not because they're gay. Right, right. <laughs> and, and like, the, the videos of, for the girls that are like, be careful, the men are going to take you out to a field and rape you. So, so how did they become predators if it's a gay right. problem? <laughs> right. Something's not adding up, y'all. <laughs> Imagine being a, a fly on the wall in like the, the a, a meeting of making these films. Like the story. I wish. Like doing the storyboard. Their storyboard. <laughs> <laughs> and the police departments are the ones doing the storyboarding. Like good grief. So horrific. Another, another thing we don't need police to be doing. Talk about police taking on roles that are not appropriate for them to have making sex ed videos for youth i don't think that's their job no no my dear lord but by 1969 of course we have the stonewall riots which if you don't know is sort of like the reason we have pride month now in june in june of 1969 this gay bar called the stonewall inn was raided and there's a lot more that goes on but basically it's a pretty like pivotal moment in queer history where people had fucking enough. They had enough of being criminalized for fucking existing. And Mm -hmm. that happens in 1969. And then in 1973, we have the court case Roe v. Wade. TBT. TBT. Don't you miss it? Rip. But yeah, basically the women's movement is in full swing. We've had the Stonewall riots in 69. And so in the seventies, I know I mentioned that in the sixties, there was mention of nocturnal emission and masturbation in boys films And we kind of continue along the trend of things being more explicit and people sort of leaning into, I mean, you know, the 70s, sexual freedom Mm -hmm. and exploration a little bit more. But then in the 80s, we have the breakout of the AIDS epidemic and there's a lot of more panic, a lot Mm -hmm. more panic about sexual exploration. Mm -hmm. And that explicitness sort of quickly went away in the 80s. And now, as we move into the 90s, like because of the continuation of the AIDS epidemic, we start to see an increase in schools offering an increase in schools, not just offering, but like requiring sex education. I was going to ask, what was the impact of the AIDS epidemic on sex ed? How did the content change? Did it become more STI forward and maybe less about pregnancy or, or even or rape or whatever they were talking about in Beware Boys shit? <laughs> um, yeah, how was that being discussed in school? Oh, great question. Instead of like in the 70s, there being an undercurrent of like freedom and exploration and curiosity, the pendulum just swings to abstinence only education. Mm. And by 1996, $50 million appeared for abstinence only education. And that mm. continues and continues. Like $60 million in federal funding. By 2000, were awarded for abstinence-only programs. Then 176 million in 2008. And where, where is the data? You know, like where is the data driving these decisions? Nowhere, Ellie. 
we will get to this. The data shows that it is absolutely useless. This does nothing to delay teen sex. It does nothing. If I hear one more goddamn time that there is not money for social programs in this country (laughs) and we're spending all this money on shit that doesn't even fucking work. I'm going to lose it. No, I I really am. Yeah. And and also what's so ironic in the 90s, too, is like we are in this absolutely panicked state. And in 1994, President Clinton forces Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders to resign because she was asked in some sort of press conference if masturbation should also be taught in sex education. And she had said, perhaps, because it's a part of human sexuality and it is something that she thought could reduce unsafe sex, which seems relatively prudent. And it's just so ironic. Like, President Clinton, do you know what you were up to a few years later? Like, I'm like, fucking hot kettle. (laughs) Maybe you need to watch one of the abstinence videos. All right. Or maybe actually, how about you go masturbate instead of bringing in the 20 year old intern? Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah. And it's just so ironic, too, because it's like masturbation is so safe. It's like the safest sex you can. Have. Literally. <laughs> like, what the hell? Honestly, that's that would be so great if in when you're talking about safe sex, it's like, OK, so here you can use condom. You know, you can use different forms of birth control. You can masturbate. Right. Don't make it anybody else's business. <laughs> Take care of that yourself. Wash your hands and get after it. Yeah. And so I thought I would show you a clip from a 1990s film to really, really give you an idea of the panic that we were just instilling in these young pubescent teens. What if I want to have sex before I get married? Well, I guess you just have to be prepared to die. (laughs) (laughs) This is a real thing. This is a real movie. Is this it's what called... Tina Fey based Mean Girls on? Like, what the fuck? It, oh, literally, I was about to say. So this film is No Second Chance from 1999. And it <gasps> oh, is... I hate that title. I know. I hate that. <laughs> oh, God. And it's literally, like, basically identical to that Mean Girls clip where the coach in the sex ed class is saying, don't have sex or you'll die, basically. Like, don't get pregnant or you'll die. Don't do this or you'll die. Like, it's... It looks like it could be a parody of a sex ed movie. I, I, it's also such a crazy thing to say because it's so dramatic and people are having sex before they get married. And it only takes like one person to be like, I guess I didn't explode. So I, I think they're lying to us. Like this, the jig is up like that. It's, it's such a easy thing to disprove. Couldn't they have made up a more believable lie? I know. Like, I, I know. I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's where the sort of you're going to hell thing works well. That that one works well because you won't know. Do you, <laughs> you want to risk know. it? Okay. But you die? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well, I guess you have to be prepared to die. I guess. <laughs> I also have this screenshot from another movie at the same time that I wanted to send you. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Can you describe it? <laughs> it's a a still of the of this film i guess this is like the next topic they're gonna cover and it just says herpes with an exclamation point but it's it has this like little monster in the front with like a crazy face and weird eyebrows or whatever that i guess is the herpes and all the letters like it looks like right so like exciting i know it's like colorful bubble letters with polka dots and stripes and diamond shaped patterns and in front of the word herpes is like a cartoon, almost Tasmanian devil-like yeah. monster that's open-mouthed screaming at you. 
It's just like, so funny because if you just took away the monster, I'd be like, herpes sounds lit. Like, what is this? <laughs> What's going and on? It, it's also not that scary as far as yeah. monsters go. And is so unresembling of herpes that I don't know what I'm supposed to even be scared of. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it looks like, like a like a dust bunny kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> like, is this, is this something that's going to come into my home? Is this some sort of bug that's running around the floor? Right. So I I just thought that was funny because that was only a few years before I was in sex ed. Imagine and being a graphic designer in the 90s with like what technology looked like, being good at making something like this, and that's what you get hired to do. I know. And you're like, fuck my life, man. <laughs> I'm like, I was trying to be an artist. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. But so into the, into the 2000s, the absence-only program – trend continues like i said 60 million in federal funding by 2000 176 by 2008 and now i mean unfortunately abstinence only until marriage aoum is what the programs used to be called but they've recently rebranded to be called sexual risk avoidance education so s-r-a-e that continues to be funded by the federal government and the combined funding allotted to s-r-a-e programs totals about 100 million for 2022 so less than that 176 from 2008 but it's still a good chunk of money it's, it's it's still too much money it should be zero right right and and that's also just something that we see a lot is people try and dress up these either useless or violent programs with names that obscure the meanings it's like pro-life like no you're fucking not pro-life yeah and this isn't sexual risk avoidance yeah because it does not delay teen sex the, the only like mention of abstinence that i want in sex ed is to say just because other people are having sex does not mean you need to have sex yeah that's it like just because you're learning about this doesn't mean it's an inevitability or that you need to be doing this tomorrow like right that's all you have to say the right time to be having sex is when you and an enthusiastically consenting partner feel ready for it exactly that's when that's it end of sentence you know and that costs zero dollars to say <laughs> and it only took a few seconds <laughs> we should go on the road <laughs> Bill Clinton, hire us. We should email every like public school teacher this episode. <laughs> Just play them this. Come on. Yeah. But currently, I know I mentioned, yes, we are giving $100 million federally to these SRAE programs. But also, we don't require that the states that do teach sex ed teach anatomically correct sex ed. <laughs> That's an interesting little <laughs> loophole. Right. <laughs> Right. So 38 states and the District of Columbia mandate sex education and or HIV education. 25 of those states and D.C. mandate both. Two states mandate sex education only. And 11 of those states mandate HIV education only. Why is HIV education separate from sex education? I will never know. This is like like how how your health insurance, like eye doctors and and dentists are like (laughs) separate. (laughs) You're like, no, my teeth are in my mouth. They're, it's in my body. Like, I'm confident my eyes are in my head. Like, I'm pretty sure about that. And also, if they do just the HIV, it's like, you're only going to learn about HIV, okay? We're not telling you about any other STI. Right. Like, okay, thanks. And and to explain to explain how someone contracts, contracts HIV, it. you have to explain sex. So, like, how are you, you getting away with this? You have to swap bodily fluids with someone to contract it. Like, <laughs> come on. You're not, you're not just going to like sit next to someone. And that's the thing is like, 
there's this iconic photo and I'll read you a caption from a BBC article about this photo, but it says, in front of the world's media, Princess Diana shook the hand of a man suffering with the illness. She did so without gloves, publicly challenging the notion that HIV slash AIDS was passed from person to person by touch. So this photo was so iconic because previously people were so scared of HIV Mm -hmm. AIDS patients that they didn't even want to be in the same room as them. Mm -hmm. Which, which like without information is fair. Right. Like if you're divorcing HIV education from sex education, I kind of understand that assumption. And like, I'm glad that, you know, Princess Diana was able to, was able to sort of help dispel that notion, but Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have had to take Princess Diana visiting someone with AIDS. It Mm -hmm. should just be part of the education. Yeah. And if Princess Diana knew that she wasn't going to get AIDS from touching someone, who's gatekeeping this information? If she knows, (laughs) clearly other people do. Right. Tell the masses. Right. So like I said, 38 states mandate sex and or HIV education, but only 17 states require that program content whether it's sex or hiv education be medically accurate that is 17 out of 50 i don't understand what what what, why like what really confuses me about this is like what is the big fear about young people having sex is it that they're gonna get an infection that they're gonna get pregnant too young both of those things can be avoided with proper sex ed so clearly the the fear is not any of that stuff you know right what what, what are we so scared of they're I know. Gonna do I, it anyway. Like they hate to break it to you. <laughs> it has been borne out in the data time and time and time again. They are going to do it regardless of how much you push the message of abstinence on them. And why do you care? Frankly, it's a little creepy how much you think about kids having sex. No, the fact that there were a hundred thousand plus films about sex ed over the past century—it it is a little weird. Like you sound repressed, ma'am. Like why are we making so many of these films? Yeah. It's also like there's there's a lot to learn, but there's not that much to learn. Right. Like, like I think we can we can consolidate. There's only so many ways you can say the same thing. Right. And I don't right. think it's a hundred thousand. <laughs> Going forward, you just need this one singular podcast episode. <laughs> but yeah, so thirty nine states and DC require the provision of information on abstinence, and then twenty nine of those states require that abstinence be stressed as opposed to simply covered. Only four states, though. Prohibit the um, programs from promoting religion. Mm. Wait, when you said stressed, how do they measure that? I think it's basically like promoting it like this over any other way to be a sexually of age individual. Mm. But yeah, so only four states prohibit the programs from promoting religion, which I just think that the separation of church and state in this country is such a joke. And I hate to think (laughs) that my taxes are going to like religiously focused abstinence programs you know Mm -hmm. especially when the churches aren't paying any of those taxes i (laughs) feel so sick to my stomach i completely forgot about that that's another question i have first why is dental and vision insurance not included in my general medical insurance but also two why don't churches pay taxes i guess because separation of church and state i don't know but then how do you have like so much influence without participating i uh really democracy alert like what the fuck (laughs) right it's like the opposite of no taxation without representation it's the flip representation without (laughs) paying my taxes (laughs) i want you to listen to me but i don't want to pay for it okay god but so i just wanted to talk about like the ways in which there are lackluster sex ed programs and also the impacts that that can have so 
Some school districts simply don't have sex ed programming in their budgets. So this is when they accept free or low cost materials made available to them by hundreds of groups around the country that are opposed to comprehensive sex ed. So this is when the religious faith-based curricula become part of like the public school programming Mm -hmm. because of that lack of funding. And they're also notorious for promoting shame and misinformation through their, once again, quote, sex risk avoidance trainings. And some of these programs are even run through local crisis pregnancy centers, which is like, if you don't know, anti-abortion fake clinics. And they include harmful lies about abortion because, again, nothing's required to be by law medically accurate. And they include harmful lies about other forms of contraception and reproductive health decisions. These programs also commonly teach young people, and particularly young women, that if they've had sex, they're like chewed gum, dirty sneakers, used toothbrushes, or tape that's been stuck to other people's skin, picking up loose hair and skin and grime along the way. I Have you heard that? Have you heard people who, like, during their sex ed, their teacher would stick tape to one person's arm then the next person and then the class would pass it around and by the end the tape has like no adhesive left and they would say to women if you have sex before marriage that's what you're like you're like used damaged goods that's so disgusting and not science i don't understand how it's um like we were saying with the separation of church and state like how is it legally allowed for a public school to have faith-based inaccurate education no idea like no no, no. you I can don't have know. a theology class where you talk where you learn about multiple religions right but you can't be doing this like propaganda nonsense mm-hmm. what i know i know it's it's really horrific and it's one of those things where especially for those who are either developmentally and like psychologically ready to be sexually active it is so shame inducing but also for people who were abused in their childhood, hmm. they feel so, I mean, beyond obviously being traumatized and violated, they also feel so worthless because they don't have the option of not having sex before marriage now. They don't mm-hmm. have the option of being a virgin. And I am, I'm a staunch believer that if you care about your first time, it is your first consensual time that yeah. gets to be your first time. I also am a staunch believer that first times don't matter. Where, what episode did we talk about this? Like, uh, in the Taylor Swift episode, I think. Oh, because yeah. we were oh, talking yeah. about how, like, virginity isn't a thing and it's not something that you lose. You're not giving anything up. You're right. Just... And you made the perfect joke, like, the first time you have a Coke, you won't get that back either. But, like, yeah. no one fucking cares. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whatever. Right. Like, there doesn't need to be this outsized importance placed on your first time. But if you are someone who, like, wants to have a special experience and thinks about your first time, it gets to be your first consensual time. Like, yeah, I I really, really hate that we've made people who have experienced abuse feel even worse than they're already going to feel in the wake of such a trauma. It's so disgusting. Is that even like, is that explicitly discussed in any of these things? Or is it like, like, are they explicitly saying at any point if you were raped or molested or had any like abuse happen to you? that also counts your it's over for you or is it just like they made these videos and they didn't even stop to think about that and it's just like a negative consequence that's happening to people especially because they're probably not talking about their abuse openly because that's also stigmatized and they just didn't even consider that as something to be wary of it's the latter i think it just like literally wasn't even thought about and then incidentally now is inducing unnecessary but 
great amounts of shame in people who are victims of abuse. And like the worst part of it all, too, is that these abstinence only programs that are faith based and are perpetuating harmful lies are also so family forward and not coincidentally because of sexual repression. Currently, the place that children are most likely to incur abuse is in the home, in the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, it's so fucking perverse that like, we've created a culture that like, produces at scale more abusers as a result of this like, lack of information and promotion of sexual repression. And then when there are victims of those abusers, we make them feel like fucking shit about themselves as if our policies weren't what sort of like, led to this being more of a phenomenon than it ever needed to be if we had better education from the jump Mm -hmm. and resources to i don't know enough about how much like education could prevent someone from causing harm Mm -hmm. but there being some resource system and not just oh i can't talk about this and i'm gonna go to school and be told that i'm a useless piece of tape like right the fuck right and i don't even know that it's necessarily education directly preventing harm i think it's more that comprehensive neutral objective medically accurate information that doesn't induce shame in its students Mm -hmm. and create space for safe consensual sex in your teen years and doesn't make you feel like garbage for being horny doesn't make you feel like you need to repress all of this. Doesn't make you feel like if only I had more willpower. Da 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 da. I think if if we didn't make people feel like they need to repress this very natural biological drive, and then make them feel like they're pathological because they have this drive, I think they would be less at scale. Like mm. mental illness takes the shape of social ills. So yeah. in places where misogyny isn't as prevalent people who are like schizophrenic or insecure or whatever the case may be they're not shooting up schools the way they do in the u.s like yeah we're not letting it fester in the same way right like mental illness takes the shape of your social ills wherever you are and i don't know if this is true but my brother told me (laughs) that apparently schizophrenia in other countries manifests as like helpful voices like it's it's like it's only I love in the U.S. <laughs> I know. I really hope it's true because that would be like hopefully less life altering or less debilitating for people working through schizophrenia. But in the U.S., we have people who think they're in some cases, or at least this is how the media portrays people with schizophrenia. We have situations where people think they're being stalked or like mm-hmm. chased or like mm-hmm. the government is out to get them, and that's scary. But mm-hmm. the point being, I think when similarly in these sex uh, sex education programs we make people feel pathological for mm-hmm. having this very natural sex drive then if they're also compounding with that other mental health risk factors or other yeah. issues going on then we are increasing the likelihood that they will perpetuate sexual abuse yeah like you were saying at the beginning of this point being in a room where you're being told that you should only have sex a when you're married which is like well what if i don't want to get married um but what if i'm legally not allowed to (laughs) also exactly (laughs) um but to to start a family and you could be sitting in that room being like "Uh, start a the family is the one that's fucking my life up (laughs) like i don't know about that i don't want that right right it's so it's so backwards man and yeah besides these absence only programs being faith-based perpetuating lies not being medically accurate 
not taking abuse into account, as we just alluded to, it really does not meet the needs of and may be harmful to any sexual minority because to date, like these programs have been so largely heteronormative mm-hmm. and has so stigmatized or like made to seem deviant other sexualities. And mm-hmm. this type of stigma and discrimination can contribute to suicidal ideations, feelings of isolation and loneliness, substance abuse, and violence among sexual minorities. Like, we are, beyond just, like, not including LGBTQ youth, I think they're contributing to harm. Because if you are, in whatever way, directly or indirectly, creating these feelings of isolation and suicidal ideation among any youth, LGBTQ or not, like, you are a problem. You are a problem of a program. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, oh, these programs don't work for their intended purpose and therefore have, like, no impact. There's still an impact. It's just not for the intended purpose. And it's <laughs> right. a negative one. So Right, exactly. It's not like, oh, well, whatever. We'll keep it. It's not hurting anybody. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It really is. And to your point, these programs do not delay teen sex. They completely fail to delay teen sex. And while students and abstinence-only programs wait to have penile vaginal intercourse longer they have four times the rate of oral sex and six times the rate of anal sex compared to peers who did not get abstinence only focused sex mm-hmm. education yeah because those are all the the loopholes you know the loopholes and the it's like loophole exactly exactly <laughs> um and it's showing exactly what we're talking about of like that natural desire and curiosity and it's always there it's always there it's not going away and that's like I feel like the only benefit of the hetero Mm -hmm. (laughs) framing is like, then people can be like, oh, the butt doesn't count lit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we're fine. Right. (laughs) Right. Literally. I I've heard about this a little bit on ex Mormon TikTok. Soaking people uh, soaking. Yeah. And God is like, you know, damn well that that is not what I said. (laughs) Right. Like, Like, it's like, yeah. So for those who don't know, soaking is basically when hetero couples pre-marriage will basically have sex but they pretend it's not because the girls on it's like missionary style right like the girls on bottom the guys on top and he just inserts his dick into her and they just sit there that's why it's called soaking like they're not moving and Mm -hmm. apparently sometimes you'll have like i know exactly what you're gonna say oh my god (laughs) a friend in the room who like will jump on the bed or like shake it from beneath so that the movement is still there right like you're like, you get that friction of genitals rubbing up against each other, but you're technically not the ones doing the thrusting. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And these programs also, beyond not, like, preventing teens from being sexually curious or horny, it's also not reducing and, in fact, likely increases teen pregnancy rates. Mm-hmm. And is that just because of the lack of real education? Yeah, because of the lack of knowledge around, okay, like, Mm -hmm. what is sperm? Like, what are my eggs? What is my period? What is ovulation? Mm -hmm. What is contraception? Mm -hmm. Should I take that pill? What's an IUD? Like, what's a condom? Like, I'm not totally aware of, like, why it's supposedly this causal correlation, but... I mean, it makes sense. If you don't know what's going on. Yeah, you're more likely to end up pregnant because you don't know how to prevent that. Yeah. And it's probably happening in a place where you're more likely to not have many options about that pregnancy. Talk about putting people in positions that you then punish them for. It's like, but you did this. You're setting me up to fail. Right. You know these programs made teens more likely to get pregnant. And then they're living in states where they do not have widespread, healthy, safe, affordable access to abortion. Mm-hmm. 
So I just wanted to basically call out that currently not every state is mandating sex education. Some of them only mandate HIV education, if that. And when they do, it is not always required to be medically accurate. Oftentimes it is promoting faith-based narratives and harmful lies about abortion, contraception, etc. And most recently, I was listening to an episode of the podcast by the New York Times called The Daily, and I've heard about this basically book ban situation that is starting to happen at schools across the country. They, in particular in this episode, were talking about New Jersey. The episode is called When Book Bans Came to Small Town, New Jersey, and it's basically telling the story of all of these parents who are rallying together to get queer books, gay books removed from the libraries at their children's public schools. So the reason I bring this up is because basically we have very often treated any member of the LGBTQ plus community as perverse and obscene and deviant for just existing. Mm -hmm. For example, people don't want gay teachers being their kids' teachers because then they feel like it's lewd somehow. It's going to rub off on them. Like, I just don't want you forcing it down my children's throat. It's fine if you're gay in private, but I don't want you forcing it down my children's throat. Like, what do you mean? Like, this is pre-calc. Like, what the right. fuck? Like, <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, I'm not for... I'm, I'm existing. I'm not forcing it down your throat. And also, straight couples... All the time are like, oh, we're tr- oh, we're really trying to get pregnant. Like y- straight couples currently are way more likely to be forcing their straight agenda down your throat and talking in slightly more explicit terms or at least alluding to their sexual activity exactly. in the classroom. Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? It's just it's just no gay teacher is like forcing this shit down people's throats. But we just feel like because they're the marked or like not default sexuality in our country, we treat them as obscene for just living. Mm-hmm. And so the books that they're trying to get banned, one of them is called This Book is Gay. One of them is called Gender Queer. And basically their argument is that it's going to groom the kids because it's mm. teaching them about things that they're not old enough yet to know about. And even there's this clip of Bill O'Reilly from like decades ago saying that the word uterus should not be said to five-year-olds. They know about their stomach, they know about their elbow, their heart, their brain, but uterus is too much because it's going to age the kids too fast. And that's also how we talk about gayness. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm. You it's... might you might groom a child into growing a uterus. Shut your mouth. Like, what the <laughs> hell? Well, I, I don't know. understand. I know. And, and I just want to call this out because, like, there is never this kind of pushback or book ban on fictional novels about straight couples mm-hmm. being a little bit sexually explicit. Like, the parents are saying, no, 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 it's not because it's gay, it's because it's sexually explicit. Really? Why is it that every book you want to ban is gay, and yeah. not any of the straight explicit books you're looking to ban? I know that this book has been banned in some places, but I feel like almost every kid that goes to an american school has to read the catcher in the rye right and that kid hires a sex worker (laughs) like and you're reading it in 10th grade like why is that cool right just be consistent okay like and also just like the courage it would have taken anyone in my fifth grade sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade class to pick up a book that says in big block text this book is gay pick it up off the shelf bring it to the librarian and check it out like That at the time, because yes, I like was in a religious school, but also it was a few years ago. Like it just, 
no one was openly gay in my middle school to be able to have that courage to do that like I just think of it as so heartening to even imagine kids wanting to check this book out and now parents wanting to ban it infuriates me you're only so much you're also only making it more aware I'm sure those kids didn't even know that book was there I know now they're probably like well what is going on in that book that my mom doesn't want me to read and is making sure the school burns every copy I'm right I'm gonna find a copy of that book like right like I might not have known what a blowjob was before but I certainly want to know basic like child psychology of just you're creating more curiosity literally but all of that to say Currently, unfortunately, sex ed and even just like library books are not necessarily giving our kids the full and complete picture of like their own bodies, consensual sexual relationships, and everything in between. So going forward, I just thought we could chat about like, especially if you're looking to possibly have kids, ways that you can kind of supplement whatever education they're receiving. So first of all, obviously, vote. I thought you said Vogue. I was like, why? No. I'm like, vote. (laughs) You're like, Anna Wintour is like famously so sexually open. (laughs) Um, I wish. (laughs) Met Gala theme next year is going to be sex ed. (laughs) Oh my God. That would be incredible. Honestly, incredible. I need someone to play the tall, aggressive blonde. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Like, I need to see that. Kim K, I'm looking at you. (laughs) The tall, aggressive blonde. But beyond just voting... You need to be able to talk about sex and answer questions as they come up in age-appropriate and not misleading ways. You need to be able to say words like penis and vagina and masturbate and erection without cringing or being weird because kids are perceptive and they're going to pick it up just like I pick it up when my mom says period in a lower decibel than the rest Mm -hmm. of the words in her sentence. Mm -hmm. They're going to pick it up if you're being cringy and they're going to start, if you're dripping in shame and embarrassment, they're going to start picking that up and Mm -hmm. codifying that as what they're supposed to feel about that too. Mm -hmm. So practice talking about it. With your dog, with your partner, alone in the mirror until you can say it without cringing. Because you really, you got to get there and repetition will help sort of like desensitize you to that cringy feeling. Mm -hmm. Also, pro of that approach of answering sort of along the way in a non-cringy fashion is that you won't have to have that awkward conversation at 12. The big talk, having never mentioned sex or vaginas or anything before, because you've already answered the questions that they had as they came up. So I think that's kind of a pro. I don't know. Did your parents ever have like the talk with you? Not really. My mom tried once and I freaked out because I already knew what sex was. And so I was like, I'm not talking about this with my mom. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember vividly because she said, do you know what about the birds and the bees? Oh my God. And I was like, first of all, like you said, I was like, the fact that you can't just say sex right (laughs) makes me not want to have this conversation right and then the next step was she bought me like two books and was kind of like you can read this on your own time was one of them the care and keeping of you i already had that one oh okay great okay great but i i I feel like i that one was kind of it it had so many things in it of like oh yeah shaving and your period and cutting your nails (laughs) like i don't know what like you might need to wear deodorant soon or bras (laughs) yeah i i think because my mom and i didn't have a, a relationship where she was saying these words all the time or whatever her approach is just giving me a book to like read on my own time I liked Mm. but if I had a kid I would want to like have a relationship where I wouldn't have to be like a this is something you go read by yourself I don't want to hear about it or like parents that are considered like oh they're so cool they just bought their kid condoms and never mentioned it again or whatever I'm like all right Mm. but 
yes, you're giving them a little more, but you're still perpetuating that this is like a shameful thing that you should not come to me with questions. Right. There was not one time in my life that I ever considered asking my parents a question about sex. Oh, me neither. Never once. And I, I really like I remember my dad basically saying, like, don't kiss boys that you don't like a lot. And like that was kind of the extent of it. But when you as a parent can answer these questions along the way. Because at three, they're going to know that their teacher is pregnant and is going to have a baby. And like, mm-hmm. how does that work? They're going to have questions. And if you are able to be that like completely neutral, no shame, engaging resource that's trusted for them and is giving them accurate information, they're going to keep asking you their questions first because they're yeah. going to know that they can and they're not going to feel like shit when they do. And also, like we were talking about earlier, if you tell someone something inaccurate... And they find out later, for example, that they don't die after having sex. Like, they're going to start to realize, wait a second, maybe they were lying. Yeah. If you talk in these euphemistic ways that, oh, that woman just has a watermelon in her belly. Because people (laughs) fucking say that about pregnant women. They're going to start to put the pieces together. Even if it's all at a relatively, like, subconscious level, they're going to start to realize you're not going to give them the truth. And so why would they even bother asking? Yeah. And if they don't ask you, the curiosity doesn't go away. They're going to ask their stupid friends who don't know anything either. Right. (laughs) You know? And another thing I was going to say is if they also now in like the internet age, Mm. if you're not answering questions in a classroom or with parents, if a kid goes on the internet to look up like, what does sex look like or whatever, the likelihood of them seeing images that are way more Mm -hmm. graphic or unrealistic or dangerous to be seeing is so much higher so much and it's gonna scare the shit out of that kid or traumatize them or i don't know even what all the psychological effects of having this was access to images is and i don't think we really know that yet right, but like you can do like, so much more for them by being neutral not inducing shame you can do so much more for them because beyond just providing the info you are making sure they're not turning to the search search engines first Exactly. Another thing I was going to say is that there's this amazing book that you, Ellie, actually turned me on to, Come As You Are, and I strongly recommend a read for everyone. But one thing I think I remember her talking about in the beginning is that this couple that she knew had an infant child and when changing their diaper, at some point, like this Mm. really, really little baby, I think it was a girl because I remember them saying like she touched her clit effectively or just like generally her vulva. Mm -hmm. And the parents sort of like swatted the kid's hand away, a baby's hand away. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, don't touch that. Mm -hmm. And from that young, we are making people feel this like very divorced relationship with their genitalia and making Mm -hmm. them feel absolute shame for having it at all because we're not doing that when they touch their cheek touch their nose touch their belly touch their elbow we are only slapping their hands away when they're touching their genitals and so Mm -hmm. another thing that i was going to say to parents is like try and think about all of the ways that you might be subliminally connecting shame with genitals shame with sex shame with body shame with masturbation or your kids and read this book but also try to start to unlearn that mm-hmm. now before before you're you know teaching this to the kids that you might have totally yeah it's not just like the oh don't touch that because you know kids will even though they're not in a like sexual age mm-hmm. they'll still have nerve endings and you know might mm-hmm. rub against things or whatever and they're just curious about like oh that feels nice or whatever right and in those situations doing the oh don't touch that or don't do that you're establishing that shame there but also in situations of a diaper and being like ew 
like even if they're not touching themselves just being like grossed out by them in general like Mm -hmm. when it comes to genitalia like in every way we're making it a very shameful area of our bodies that almost everyone in this world will explore so it's like just don't don't make it any harder and more to unpack and and deal with in the future right because then yeah exactly it's just like it's just going to become again either something that kids turn to the internet for answers about or hide from you or don't know that they should be washing their hands before masturbating or washing Mm -hmm. any toys they're using Mm -hmm. before and after masturbating or even like i think about this all the time If you want to do butt stuff on your own with a partner, whatever the case may be, you, if you are introducing toys, need to have a flared base. Mm -hmm. And I think all the time about like, maybe you think as a parent, it's embarrassing to tell that to a child if they're asking or whatever. Like if you think that's embarrassing, do you know what's worse? Bringing your kid to the ER because they have something stuck up their butt. Like I'm so dead serious that harm reduction is the way when it comes like fear mongering isn't going to do anything but cause more confusion curiosity and harm yeah or your kid having something stuck there and not telling you because they're so embarrassed like that could be so scared that could have a much bigger health effect than oh i told you immediately let's go to the doctor or them trying to get it out using something like just or even like i think about with like sexting too because that's so much more a product of the digital age and i think parents probably feel out of their element since right now Mm -hmm. just with like the generations and how they're falling anyone who has a kid right now that is of the age to sex probably didn't have a camera phone when they were a teenager and so i know it's so easy to find that cringier to not want to talk about or feel out of your element when Mm -hmm. talking about it but for the most part, it might not be your kid, but kids will sext each other. Yeah. They will send pictures of themselves to each other. You might not want them to, but it's going to happen. So they at least should have access to the information like, you know what? Don't include your face, yeah. tattoos, or identifying birthmarks. If you want to do this, by all means. But I'm just saying, you know, like protect yourself to the degree that makes sense and like enjoy yourself. Have at it, but like do it safely. Yeah. And it's it's difficult because our parents or parents right now of teenagers didn't have access to this this technology you're trying to teach your kid about something that they already know way more about than you do and so you're already at a disadvantage of trying to explain the internet to them and they're like all right boomer like (laughs) shut the fuck up i think i know what's going on but there's still kids who don't have the same capacity of realizing devastating consequences that can happen to you and like it is really really hard when you have a crush on someone, of course you're looking at them through rose-colored glasses, and you don't think that they would ever get mad at you, that they would ever show their pictures to a friend, that they would Mm -hmm. ever post them on the internet. Of course you don't think that because you like them, but teenagers can be fickle and they can be nasty, and they might post it, and they might show it to a friend. Or it might not even be that person that you're looking at with rose-colored glasses very well, maybe exactly who you think they are, and their friend has their phone password because they're buddies and whatever, and they see the picture and take it. Or one of your friends gets mad at you and knows that you've sent a picture, and they take it. Right. Or their phone is, like, hooked up to their parents' iCloud. Like, you don't know. You just don't know. Your phone gets hacked. Like, it's just celebrities get their shit hacked of photos they're sending to their spouses. You're not safe on the internet. (laughs) It's just not. Right. It sucks, but, like, you have to be careful yeah and like there was someone in my high school who transferred to my high school from another one and changed her name because her nudes had circulated and there's like oh my god yeah it's it's like really it's really traumatizing and like 
there's no plausible deniability when, you know, your face is in it. I guess now people are more sophisticated at Photoshop, so I guess you could better be able to be like, that's Photoshopped. Like, that's not me. I didn't send it. Whatever. Ha ha. Bye. But either way, like... The impact is still there, though. Yeah. Like, it's hard to... It's hard to think that many steps ahead but like kids can be so mean and mean enough to force you to feel like you need a transfer or you can't yeah you know or or otherwise you just like can't keep going to that school so no face no tattoos no identifying birthmarks in any nudes that you're sending even if it's on snapchat and that, that's for adults too so true <laughs> we're trying to help you keep your job yeah really <laughs> and also don't fire someone for having nudes that's exactly. another thing to any employer, this is normal behavior. Relax. You should be like sending them a gift for having to deal with that. Right. <laughs> you should get a, 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 a nice bonus. Oh my God, a bonus. Like, and I'm so sorry your partner revenge porn to you. <laughs> bonus. <laughs> the last piece of advice I was going to say was for anyone, again, thinking about having children or like sort of just wondering if you have nieces and nephews or you babysit or you just spend time with kids who might be curious and might have questions something that you can also do is just like look up the most common questions kids might have Mm. and think about how you would answer them because i mean the thing is they're always going to surprise you they're always going to say things like yeah can i use a ziploc bag instead of a condom or like does the guy take his penis off and put it in the woman's (laughs) vagina like how does that work like or (laughs) I i saw one thing on the internet where people were like a kid asked me one time if having sex for two hours is what makes twins like kids will always <laughs> surprise that's you that's so know. cute <laughs> i know i wonder if so, that kid is like thinking they're thinking that that's family planning that kid is like oh well, for sure i'm not trying to have a twin <laughs> how long between intercourses do i need to wait to, to make wait, sure yeah. that i don't get pregnant again <laughs> right right so it's like They're always going to say things that will surprise you, but I think the more questions you're able to anticipate, and again, like the more practice you've had talking about this with even close personal friends or your partner or anyone, like the more books you read about this, even if you watch sex education on Netflix, like the more you're able to sort of incorporate this in a neutral way, the better you will be able to serve the kids in your life. Yeah. How do you feel about, um, you know, when you're a kid and you're watching a movie with your family and there's... A sex scene or a kissing scene or something and your parents either fast forward or tell you to close your eyes or stuff like that that's a great question i mean my parents were definitely weird during kissing scenes which i feel like was maybe a little over the top even like adult men in my life would leave the room when tampon commercials came on during football games which is ridiculous it could groom them audra it could groom them (laughs) god forbid I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, I guess, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this is my first thought because I just, this question just came to me. <laughs> um, but I think similar to the internet thing of if you Google something, you could be getting a whole host of shit. I think for the most part, if you're sitting down with a kid to watch a movie, there's some rating to that movie. And I know that the like rating system is all like kind of weird, but yeah, the kind of sex and physical touch that are in most films, it's not porn and it's not that Mm -hmm. crazy or graphic or anything so i feel like if there's a scene where people are you know like under the sheets and they're kissing or like Mm. stuff like that i think it'd be healthy to not make your kid have to avert their eyes because it's the shame thing that we've been talking about i think maybe as a parent you can kind of gauge how comfortable you are with 
if there's actual nudity and maybe you don't want to do that or whatever it is, I'm sure that there's, or I hope that there's some sort of actual child psychology expert that can maybe gauge a little bit more if there's any negative effects of that. But like, I think for the most part, if you, if the movie is appropriate for children enough that you would sit and watch it, I don't see why you should avert your eyes at love or pleasure. hundred percent. And also I was thinking if there's a movie that's really popular and you as a parent know, for example, let's say Bridgerton, which the first season was extremely sexually explicit. And Mm -hmm. let's say your kid is like 13, 14 and they've started maybe having some sex education in school they've asked enough questions maybe they've been asked out on a date like they're sort of at an age where they're a little bit ready to think about sex for pleasure in more of like a directly applicable way to their own lives yeah and now Bridgerton is all the rage and all Mm -hmm. of their friends are watching it and like you know that it's really sexually explicit but they really want to watch it I really think that like even if you don't think the sex being portrayed in the show is realistic it's actually still really productive to open up that line of communication with your child and watch it with them and just be like yeah i really liked that show one thing i didn't like is that daphne when she's having sex with a duke does something that he explicitly said he did not consent to Mm -hmm. i think if you watch those things but then can productively problematize the dynamics or things that were non-consensual or if you're also regularly creating this environment for your children where they're having access to bodies of all kinds disabled bodies and bodies of different races and ages and all Mm -hmm. of this stuff then it's possible that this sort of show with two unbelievably attractive people having sex will have less of an impact on their sense of self and security but even so i think it's just maybe worth problematizing whatever dynamics you think might not be realistic rather than just not letting them watch it at all. Because if all of their friends are watching it, they're going to want to watch it. And like, you might as well. And then just get it out in the open. Yes. I think that once a kid is, has access to a computer in a way that you're not constantly monitoring, they're going to go watch Bridgerton or they're going to go mm-hmm. watch it at their friend's house or, you know, their friend who has an older sister or brother is like yep. going to mm-hmm. let them watch something or whatever it is. So like you're saying, just keeping the line of communication really open or or even suggesting watching a show like that together. Yeah. And normalizing that you can watch something like that with your parent and they're not going to be weird about it. And I know like obviously you and I are not parents. Right. I do think we're in an interesting age, though, where we're kind of close to the ages that we're talking about now of like, I feel like I'm kind of equidistant from high school and to the age where I will maybe start thinking about having a kid for me personally totally and so I kind of feel like I'm close to the memories that I have of like what I would have liked to when I will be putting that into practice if I have a child so it's interesting to like be thinking about this from that perspective of like oh what was it like for me and what would Mm. I like to do differently what would I've been receptive to yeah exactly so I don't know how difficult it is to have a kid but I also know how difficult it is to be a kid yeah (laughs) because I was one (laughs) yeah and like I definitely don't think that when I was in high school, I would have had the relationship with my mom to watch Bridgerton together and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And now we do. Absolutely. I mean, Mm -hmm. that poor woman is subject to some of the most draining conversations. And I, I talk about anything and everything with her. But I think it is partly just because I've learned so much more now. And I, I, in myself, feel so much more comfortable with knowing it's not a shameful thing and i i wonder if i knew then what i know now would we have been better able to have that kind of communication i don't know but yeah i definitely think it's yeah and i and i also think about it when i'm like around other people's kids i'm not the parent i don't want to do anything that the parent would be uncomfortable with right 
But like, how would I handle if a kid asked me something not in the presence of their parents? Yeah. Because I don't, I don't want to lie to kids, but I, right. don't, I, I don't know how to handle that kind of situation. That's a great point. I mean, I personally would probably maybe have a conversation with babysitters of my kids and just be like, don't tell them they have like a pregnant lady has a watermelon in her belly. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you can say that she's pregnant. You can. And if you're not comfortable, just say, that's a wonderful question. I don't know. How about you ask your mom when she gets home? But mm-hmm. don't, you know, don't lie to them. And yeah. like you said, there's there's only so much you can do, especially now. But yeah, that's another really good point. Yeah. Even if you're not like paying them, like if it's your like a sibling of yours or your parents or whatever, you don't need to be like a total micromanager, I guess. But I, I do like the idea of saying to other people in your family, like, hey, we don't really use this word here. Or yeah, if they ask about this, like, please be honest and or whatever. And I think it's within your rights to like have a little... Right agency over how your kids are being spoken to and stuff right like we don't say that time of the month or aunt flow in this house you Mm -hmm. can say period menstruation vagina Mm -hmm. and if you're not comfortable just say how about you ask your mom and and leave it at that like you shouldn't be forced to talk to someone else's kids about things you're not ready to but yeah i think it's not a crazy request to be told like hey let's not euphemize i'm not comfortable with that because i'm sure there's many situations where a babysitter gets asked questions that a kid doesn't want to ask their parents. Oh, especially because I thought some of my babysitters were so cool. Mm-hmm. I think if you're in a family where you have sort of the same babysitter over and over rather than a rotating lineup, you might be more likely to have a close relationship with them and mm-hmm. idolize them. To me, teenagers, when I was in middle school, high schoolers and college kids were just the coolest of the cool you know like yeah anything they told me I would have automatically believed more than mm-hmm. anything my parents told me because I would have thought my parents have an agenda yeah but this, <laughs> but this girl she knows what's up you know like yeah. so I think that information flow might even be like the most trusted source to your thirsty ass little kid who wants to be popular like that girl like exactly you know? no totally I feel like especially if you are a firstborn or an only child or maybe you're not the firstborn, but your older siblings are way older or of a different gender than you, like Mm -hmm. you might connect with a different authority figure yeah, because they're the example that you have or whatever. Um, But yeah, that's so interesting. I'm thinking of like what kind of conversations I would want to have with a babysitter if I had kids. Honestly, I'm just going to make you babysit my kids. Exactly. (laughs) You know what? If you have questions you're not comfortable coming to me about, ask your cool Aunt Elisa. Like, she'll she'll handle it. She'll handle it. I know. That's that's the the baby swap that we're going to be having. (laughs) Literally. That's pretty much the note that I wanted to end on. Is there... Anything else you wanted to wrap with? Anything else you learned or surprised by? Additional thoughts you want to share? I think the the last thing that I want to add or talk about is we need to queerify our sex ed. Yep. And Come As You Are, for example, the book that you mentioned, it was super informative to me. And the author says at the beginning, like, we don't have enough research at this point, unfortunately, mm. for me to include trans people in this book. So keeping in mind that a lot of the information that we have in the entire history of sex ed that you've taken us through mm-hmm. is going to be prioritizing and and centering and first becoming available to cis white people, mm-hmm. straight white people. So thinking of how we can like make sure that we are as inclusive as possible, yeah. especially with kids as they are coming into their own and figuring out their own sexual identity, gender identity, expression, like all of that stuff, making sure that we're not cutting corners and actually giving a full breadth of information. And everyone deserves information about their bodies. 
So, And if there's a local push to yeah. fucking ban this book is gay from your local public school, I definitely strongly recommend you join the opposing team. Like, go vote if you're a parent at that same school and vote in opposition to those parents who just treat queer people as inherently obscene. Because we really, as you mentioned right now, because of the, the historic lack of studying queer relationships, we currently need things like this book is gay more than ever. So mm-hmm. I, I really don't want those books to be banned. And that that is something that you can, if you are a parent of a child at a public school, that's something you can do is asking your library, what books do you keep on yeah. your shelves? Not just, not just get on the side of not banning the book, but also you may need to be adding a lot of books to this library. <laughs> there might not even be a book to you ban. You can donate books to the library and you can, you know, if you if you have the money and the resources to try to appeal to whatever school your kids or your nephews or the kids you babysit go to or whatever it is, any influence you can use to donate your books or donate different sex ed textbooks than the ones that school is currently getting from the crisis pregnancy center mm-hmm. because of the lack of funding. Like anything you can do while we wait for our votes to help with pushing larger scale policy change would be great. There's also plenty of free resources of if you were able to compile like a good list of YouTube videos. Mm. That's free. No one needs to donate anything. No one needs to spend more money. Gorilla sex education program. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Oh my goodness. Well, I think that was a perfect note to end on. And with that in mind, I actually literally am going to go watch season three of sex education on Netflix because I haven't caught up and I'm very behind. I'm going to research what I need to do to become a sex ed teacher. <laughs> Are there any qualifications? <laughs> if this podcasting shit doesn't work I'm out. I'm coming in hot. <laughs> catch us at the local public school. <laughs> Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn.